You are now listening to the Unstucked Podcast, where we teach you actionable steps to get unstuck in your life, career, finances, and business. Here's your host, Khalil Dumas. What's going on, Unstucked fam? If you're loving the podcast, be sure to visit unstuck.com for more resources, ways to work one-on-one with me and my company, Unstucked, as well as our free Unstucked guide to help you get unstuck in your career, life, finances, and business. Some exciting news, we have launched our budgeting course where I will sit down with you and walk you through our custom budget. The link will be below. I'm so happy you're here for the ride. And now on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unstuck Podcast. I'm your host, Khalil Dumas. Today, I'm joined by Rakim Sabri. Rakim is an emerging leader in the financial empowerment space, a nationally certified financial education instructor, TED speaker, best-selling author of the book, Financially Irresponsible, and he's also a financial empowerment coach. Hey, Rakim, how are you? Doing well. Happy to be here. Thanks for jumping on. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Actually, shout out to Gigi for connecting us. Uh, She spoke glowingly of you, not only from the perspective of helping folks with their finances, but also taking that leap and quitting corporate a year ago, writing a book. I mean, uh, so I'm really excited to get into it. So tell us, what's your story? Why and how did you begin educating people on personal finance? And also, why did you quit your job? (laughs) Such a loaded question. But I think the great thing about my story is that it continues to unfold, right? So there's the evolution of, you know, what I was talking about last week versus what I'm talking about this week. So I always start with growing up in Westchester County, New York, experiencing aspects of poverty and how uh, the realization of what poverty is coming out of that environment helped me to, one, be really determined and engaged in learning financial education for myself to make a difference. But two, in bringing that information back home, so to speak, to friends, to family, and working in financial services, I realized that there was a need for that content to be shared. So I took it upon myself as somebody who had this exposure to financial education, financial products, financial services, to go out into the community and share that. So that's kind of how I got my start. And it's been a journey. (laughs) It's been definitely a journey since. Absolutely. And that's key. And I, you know, I really can empathize with you in terms of, you know, the aspects of poverty. I was raised by single mom on welfare. And I think the biggest thing that that did for me was gave me a sense of curiosity. But like you said, gave you a sense of hard work and determination to do better. And so when you start bringing a lot of this knowledge home, like what's that experience like? Is it smooth? Do people listen to you? Do you get more respect? Like, what is that like for you? And then also, personally, like, how does that feel to be bringing that knowledge home, to be sharing kind of what you've learned so far? Yeah, I grew up kind of with a charge from my grandfather in particular to um, always be, his analogy, sneezing in the face of people, right? Very bad analogy post-COVID, but (laughs) pre-COVID. I see, I see with that analogy, I like that. (laughs) Pre-COVID, it it was a great analogy. And, And so, you know, my grandfather would pick us up from school and as we're driving home, he would say, So how many people's faces did you sneeze in today? That's a memory from childhood that is very fond, but also that's kind of central to my being, uh, you know, 25 plus years later, right? So how does it feel? It feels like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. 
what was the response? And this journey has been, you know, a decade plus journey for me uh, from, you know, the first day that I was hired into banking role. And so it's evolved. I think there are people who are resistant to the information coming from me because it was coming from me initially. And then I definitely see people who kind of flock to, you know, my side and like, hey, you know, you got the end. Like, I want to know what's the secret. Tell me. And then there's been kind of this gradual audience growth that extends beyond close friends and family, right? Now I've developed the following across social media. I've shared thought leadership in large publications and different podcasts. So there are people that I'm impacting that I've never met, that I've never spoken to. And to have those kind of echoes come back, you know, somebody might send me a DM and say, hey, I read your book last year and since then I've done this, this, and this. And I'm like, wow, like I, I didn't even know who you were prior to this conversation. The fact that I can have that kind of an impact, um, again, goes back to this idea of me feeling like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But it gives me a personal satisfaction in that I'm helping people to kind of look at things differently, particularly with their finances. Absolutely. And that's something I wanted to ask because I think a lot of young entrepreneurs and even older entrepreneurs, when they meet that resistance, that tends to shut a lot of people down, right? Especially in the infancies, like when you first get started, you want everyone to listen. You want everyone who you give your message to to receive it, right? And understand how hard you've worked to get that message out. And I really appreciate you sharing that because really what you start to find are your people who are going to listen, right? Like you said, complete strangers are going to be really receptive to the information that you have, not necessarily the people we know. But what I find in, in my interviews as well is people we know tend to kind of stop our dreams too. And so I just wanted to give that perspective for anyone that's starting something in the middle of something. Maybe you've been doing something for a while that's not working and you feel kind of discouraged. I want you know Rakim to be an example here that if you keep going, you'll find that audience, you'll find that tribe. So Rakim, it's no secret that Black people are the largest spenders in the U.S., right? We hold up a large majority of the economy, whether folks like to recognize that or not. But also at the same time, we're amongst some of the most financially illiterate in the U.S. So when you start to break that down, you wrote a book called Financially Irresponsible. What does that mean? What does it mean to be financially irresponsible? I love this question. And before I answer it, I would challenge uh, what you said, too, in that I wouldn't say we are the most financially illiterate. In the time that I've been spending in this space and kind of pulling back the layers of what this financial landscape looks like, right? And financial education as a whole in the way that it's taught and in the way that it's delivered, that everybody's starting off equal footing, right? We have to acknowledge history and the role that history plays or has played in, we'll call it the illiteracy, right, of Black people. But there is a larger problem, I think, that goes kind of under the radar and that's the population of Black people who are not financially illiterate, but are behaving as if they are, right? And so then we kind of as third parties or as first parties who care will not really see that because, well, if they're financially literate, then they should be doing X, Y, Z. And that's when we get into this idea of financial trauma and financial empowerment. And how do we overcome financial trauma to be financially empowered so that we can show off what is our financial literacy. And so Financially Irresponsible, the title was designed to be kind of catchy, catch people's attention and make them kind of stop in their tracks because it represents two things. It represents the fact that most people, not just Black people, 
defer their financial wellness to the professionals, right? Your financial advisors, your financial planners, your Google, your your friends on social media. Like, there's not a lot of us doing the due diligence to understand money and how money is supposed to be used. The second part of it is that in the book, I talk about strategies that traditionalists in the personal finance space might consider financially irresponsible, but that have worked for me. And so it really underscores this idea that personal finance is personal and that there's not one way to skin a cat, right? You can arrive to your destination by doing some things outside of the norm. So I love that you opened it up this way. In the case of Black people, sometimes we have to do things. Many times we have to do things outside of the norm in order to catch up or at least get some kind of leverage that will allow for us to be successful financially. Yeah, it was wonderfully said. And, you know, the trauma piece and also just not knowing what you don't know is key. And I experienced it personally. That is something that I definitely realized was I was, and I was college educated. I went to college. But at the same time, when you go home and the environments you're in, if people aren't talking about generational wealth, right? If people aren't talking about what personal finance means, what it means to set up an emergency fund, what it means to invest early and often, right? If people aren't telling you that, you just don't know. And so you're absolutely correct that it extends past the Black community. But I did want to make it at a point that we both know, right? That it's not something that culturally is really spoken about. I think that dial has turned aggressively. I think, you know, with the use of social media, with more public figures, with more athletes especially, right, becoming billionaires, and you're seeing this news, I think there's been an intrigue and people want to, quote unquote, get the bag, right? We have these terminologies now that are starting to really come out. And I love that you said trauma, because I think that gets down to the root of everything. I'm the grandson of an indentured servant or a slave in, in a sense. When I was growing up, we weren't talking about finances. We were talking about making rent. We were talking about keeping lights on. Like we weren't talking about the future. And I think that is really where personally I've tried to make that turn. I've tried to really start to make that a point of my own brand. And I've seen you've done it wonderfully. And I love how much you're opening up the conversation. Just in my limited research that I've done of you, I really see you starting to rewrite this narrative to empower. It's like you remember being in history class, right? If they're only, they're, They just were only teaching us about slavery. They were never teaching us about all the wonderful things that Black people accomplished that we did. So I did want to make that pivot because, you know, a big majority of my listeners are Black. And I know that this is something personally that they've brought to me, which is like, how can I start to turn that dial? I feel really alone. Like I'm starting to do these things, but I have no support. And so we've turned to folks like you, right, to really give us that support, to give us that voice. And so I thank you for sharing that. And something else you said was wonderful, that personal finance is personal. And I know that seems like such a like obvious thing, but we'd never talk about it like that. Personal finance is like David Ramsey, right? Like personal finance is this like one plus one equals two that you have to spend less than you earn, blah, blah, blah. You know, we can go on and on. And so I just really appreciate you saying that because it's so true. You can get to where you want to go the way you'd like to go about it. So, you know, if I'm someone that's listening to this, do you have any tips and tricks to start to figure out what personal finance looks like to me? How do I start to make that pivot? What were some things that worked for you when you started to really take this personal finance seriously and generational wealth building seriously? Like, are there some tips and tricks that you can share? I'm definitely going to say that I was fortunate because I worked in the industry. So by osmosis, there was a lot 
of exposure, certainly from a product side or a service side, understanding what is a checking account, what's the value of having a credit card. I had benefits for the first time. So how do I allocate my 401k, you know, and all of those things. And so there was a lot of on-the-job learning just being in the space. But outside of the on-the-job learning, the books that I've read, the seminars that I've attended, the courses that I've purchased, like there was a desire within me to learn more based off of that taste, that exposure. And so, you know, I've been talking about the three E's lately in that one of the questions that I'm often asked is, how do you talk about overcoming financial trauma? So my answer is three E's, right? It's the exposure, it's the education, and it's the execution. And so with that, my experience is one of getting the exposure by entering the space, right? I didn't know any better until I was around better. Then it was getting educated. So not just stopping at, okay, I'm around people who are talking about these things. How do I learn about these things so that I can have some kind of mastery of it? And then the execution, which is the hardest part, really, in that that's where you face the trauma of what if, right? You look at all of history, you look at what are the experiences of your family or your friends or peers within the community that you're a part of, and you say, well, here are all the reasons why I can't be successful doing this thing. Do I move forward anyway? And so the execution piece is crucial. And and so, you know, showing up and telling that story, wrapping it up nicely in a bow, right? That's been my journey in that hopefully other people are getting that same level of exposure, education, and maybe the encouragement to execute that I did. That's wonderfully said. And I love the three E's. And I think, you know, in my experience, two things have really helped me. Budgeting, not something that like actively doing it all the time, but I always tell people do it one time. If you're getting into personal finance right now today, I think that's a huge thing. I actually just created a course around that. It was free. That kind of walks you through it because basically, right, if you understand your flow of money, that will allow you to execute better. And the second thing, which I love, right, the three E's, I think that is just fabulous. That process isn't linear. A lot of times when I work with my clients, right, they'll do really well in the first month. And then they'll, like you said, right, like you can slide back. You can feel like you're sliding back into old habits. You can feel like, right, you haven't gone anywhere. And so that's something I wanted to add to your message, which is this process isn't linear. And it's like the chicken and the egg example, right? Both can happen at the same time, right? You can be financially really well and financially terrible, or in your case, right, you could be financially irresponsible at the same time. And that's okay. And I think taking some of that shame away is really important. But exposure, educate, execute, like, man, it doesn't get more succinct than that. And if I could, I would write that on my wall if I'm someone that's really to get started. Like, how can I get the exposure? Listening to folks like Rakim and myself, like, how can I educate myself again? Like, we're here, we're doing this. And then it's on you to execute. Like, we can't do that for you. And I think that's where just leading by example is really important. So not only are you kind of innovating in the finance space, right? You're really starting to talk about financial trauma. You're really starting to differentiate, right, in that space. And similarly, I hear you had to make a change most likely to do that effectively, which was quitting your job. I want to really take a moment and say congratulations on that because I have a lot of friends that have done this and it is really hard. It is really like a hero's journey. 
David and Goliath is corporate America looking at you like, how dare you leave me? So I want to say congratulations first and foremost. Talk to me about that experience. I mean, really, like if you can get a little vulnerable here, like I want to hear about that because I know it's not easy. And, you know, congratulations on one year. But like I just talked about, right, like I know this isn't linear. So I want to hear a little bit about your story and quitting and how that's gone for you. Yeah. uh, First off, thank you for the congratulations. I always appreciate that feedback from people because it has, it's a hell of a journey. Um, There's been a lot of fear. Uh, I think that there still is fear, but it's just, it gets to a point where you're like, all right, like, come on, you're my friend now, right? You're not a stranger (laughs) to me anymore. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Absolutely. I think the biggest part of the fear for me was leading up to the decision. It was, who am I going to let down by making this decision? And so really kind of summoning my belief in myself that if everybody turned their back on me, I still had to have enough to keep moving forward. Now, I knew, certainly didn't anticipate that everybody would turn their back on me. But, you know, when you start battling with your own mind, the irrational becomes rational and vice versa. I like to talk about this experience from multiple lenses, first and foremost from a mental health lens that says corporate America was making me sick and not necessarily in a physical sense, although there's aspects of that that's true, but it was making me sick in recognizing myself. So yeah, I just want to pause there to kind of let that sit in. It was making me sick in recognizing myself. I spent all of my 20s in corporate America. I allowed corporate norms and culture and the culture of leadership within corporate America, that relentless climb of the ladder to get the next promotion, to get the next raise, to get the next bonus. And what are the things that you have to sacrifice in your identity and how you show up in your physical health and your mental health? How do you put that face on every day and show up? That was a tough thing to kind of divorce, right? I've been using the phrase, I fired my boss since, you know, last May, May of 21. I've been using that phrase intentionally because you just think about the impact just hearing, I quit my job versus I fired my boss. Yeah. You take that power back. Absolutely. That's literally exactly what it is. It's taking back power over me, over my being. Definitely talking about it from a mental health lens. I was experiencing very high levels of anxiety. I had battled previously with depression and anxiety on a consistent basis while working in a corporate environment. And so very sensitive to the things that trigger me to feel not like myself. But I was also at a crossroads in that I had been building a personal brand while working well within the organization. I had delivered a TED Talk. I had wrote my first book. Then I wrote my second book. Then I started writing for publications. I started being featured in publications. I was invited to conferences to speak. I was pursuing certifications that had nothing to do with my role. And I would share this success on social media, but in particular on LinkedIn, where it would always become a conversation with my direct manager. And the conversation usually went along the lines of, well, why are you doing this thing? Right. What is your commitment to the company? Uh, How is this thing impacting your role? 
And so really I have to kind of like turn it around and say, well, you tell me, right? You just gave me the review. I'm meeting all your expectations, right? <laughs> yeah, you just like, gave me like, a bonus, right? You just gave me a raise, right? <laughs> I must be doing my job. And then it became, you know, kind of like a tit for tat petty game of, well, you can meet expectations because you're doing your job. There's no question about that. But are you exceeding expectations? And what are the things that you need to do in order to exceed expectations? The funny thing about corporate and the leadership that I had cultivated, right? Because usually you think of that dynamic in the reverse, is that I allowed them to believe about me what it is that they wanted to believe about me. And one of the things that they believed about me or that they believed that they learned about me was that I was driven by titles, accolades, the money. And aspects of that are certainly true. Definitely a very ambitious person. But I'm ambitious because of the carrot that I dangle internally, right? Not because of the carrot that somebody else is dangling. And so when titles, promotions, opportunities began to be withheld from me as punishment for me stepping out of what their prescribed path for me was, and I started to realize that I can make waves on my own by producing my own stuff, then that's where I think the biggest clash came, where I started to be questioned and you know scrutinized and micromanaged in my time and micromanaged in my processes and put in positions where I had to justify my role. And I'm like, wait a second, you guys hired me. Why am I justifying my role? I was threatened but not directly. It was kind of like this undercurrent of, well, 200 people just got laid off and we may not be done yet. If I were you, I would be doing everything I can to keep my manager happy type stuff. So eventually I just got to a point where I started to see other people were leaving their jobs to pursue entrepreneurship on social media. And I'm like, man, I wish I could do that. And then my wish I could do that turned into, well, how can I do that? And then my how can I do that turned into some very strategic conversations with people that I trust around what my exit strategy was going to be and what is it that I had access to in terms of assets, whether that be money invested, money saved, access to credit, et cetera. And how long could I live on those assets before I really needed to start making an income? And ultimately, when that all lined up, I said, you know what, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and I left. <laughs> oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that because I know it's not easy. And you said some really awesome things through that whole portion. And, and the first one that caught me was that fear aspect. And it almost personifies itself when you start to make big decisions. It's like almost you can like feel it behind you. Like you know when it's going to creep up. And you said the irrational becomes rational. And mental health is really important here when you start to make these big decisions. And what I wanted to talk about is something I've kind of experienced as well. I was in the startup world. I sold a startup really young. It was about 25, 26. And now I find myself in another one. So my journey in corporate America has been very different than a lot of people because I've really taken my business persona and shown up there that way. So I ask for what I need. I'm unapologetic. And I let them know that they're lucky to have me and not the other way around. And I've found that like, 
majority of corporate America is your experience. When I talk to Gabby, I can list it off. Like, there's definitely a validating piece here where corporate America, to your point, made you sick, but really corporate America is sick. Something that I kind of found was, and I play with this idea because I I work from about eight to one. I don't really have a nine to five, but like I can kind of set my hours and do it that way, but it's still corporate. I still work for a laboratory. I still work in healthcare. Was that really when I tried to do my own business and I would start doing business with other businesses, right, as unstucked, I found myself like back in the corporate environment again. And I was like, wait, but like I wanted to leave this. And so what I really found out was it wasn't, a symptom of my environment. And I wanted to get your kind of sign off and see what your experience was, but it wasn't like a symptom of the environment, but rather the boundaries I set, the expectations that I set up for myself that allowed people to move that or not. I think when you quit, right, that took your power back. You fired your boss. You said, look, dude, like you're not doing it for me. So I don't mind working for corporations. I don't mind making that bag from corporations, but like, you're going to do it my way. Have you like experienced that at all? Because I feel like I'm crazy sometimes. I'm like, it's not corporate sometimes. And I hate to like let them off the hook because they definitely defile and disrespect. And like, I used to call them corporate gangsters. Like what you're describing as a corporate gangsta, like somebody that really is power grasping. How much of that have you learned as like your own learnings, like your own things that were getting in the way? Like, especially now that you're on your own, like what are some things that you've learned in that regard? That's an interesting question. I think that there are aspects to your statement that are definitely accurate in that, particularly for Black people, there are cultural norms maybe in those spaces that says we have to work twice as hard to be just as good, or you know we have to show up early, we have to smile a certain way, talk a certain way, that we can't be our full authentic selves in these spaces. But where does that idea come from but somebody else's experience? And so to your point, it is a validating experience to hear other people, particularly people of color, particularly Black people, say that they had experienced the same thing, the same anxiety, the same pressure, the same internal stress, the same battle with you know, this dominant culture. But... I'm not going to let corporate off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> no, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Because a lot of corporate culture is, it's white male culture, right? It's, it's. Um, I've been using the phrase or the term white supremacy a lot lately. It's white supremacy kind of behind the scenes in that the most untouchable person in the corporate space is going to be that tall white man. And then you have the further away you get from that, the less power you have. So uh, my leadership, my direct leadership, when I was working in corporate, most of the time was a white woman who is trying to prove themselves in a white man-dominated space. And sometimes the best way to prove yourself is by showing people who are beneath you how powerful you are, particularly if those people are Black men, right? So I feel like a lot of my white, and I'm not saying all, but a lot of my white women leadership that I've experienced, and even some non-white women leadership, got a kick out of telling me how good I could be, how fast I could move up the ladder, you know, what was acceptable, what was not acceptable. There were so many, like, power plays and, and, and little games around 
what my experience looked like that I had to just kind of like bite my tongue and kind of smile through it. I'll tell you a story, though, on the other side of corporate America, working with corporations. In February of this year, I was approached by an international organization to speak for Black History Month. And I showed up to the presentation with a do-rag on. For the entirety of the conversation, I had my do-rag on, and we talked about being authentically you. Because it was an international company, I had to talk about what is a do-rag, first of all, and what are the cultural kind of ramifications, if you will, as a Black man walking around in certain spaces with a do-rag on, and why this was so impactful. And it was a beautiful experience. Actually, they made a video testimonial about how impactful it was for them. And I was just like, wow, like, I made it. It was a big deal for me. And so I want to go back to what you said in saying that some of it is showing up as you and making space, your own space, and saying, okay, this is who I am. I'm unapologetic about who I am. This is what you're going to get. If you don't like it, you can go. But how many people are in a position to have those kind of standards when they're going into those spaces? And so I think, you know, it's a combination of both where it's like, yeah, I could show up and I could wear my do-rag. And yeah, I could show up and I could talk how I talk in the street and have my earrings and my tattoos visible and be, you know, be me. But then what kind of biases are the people who are making decisions on the other side of the table going to pull the trigger on and says, ah, you know, maybe he's not professional because he has his do-rag on or because he has tattoos visible or because he's using a sharper, succinct kind of conversational style or he's talking loud or, you know, I'm scared, right? And being conscious of those kind of power dynamics in corporate was something that I excelled at. And to the degree that sometimes... If I didn't like the way a conversation was going, I would change my body language. I would talk a little bit louder. I would lean in, right? Like I, I knew how to use those things to my benefit, but I didn't often use those things to my benefit because I needed a job, right? And so that's what I fired my boss is all about for me. It's, it's having the power to make these decisions and show up, to your point, as you unapologetically because I've had such a terrible experience with corporate America, I've been really resistant to going back into those spaces as an employee and really like gung-ho about going into those spaces as Rakim Sabri, the person in Rakim Sabri, the brand that I've created. Wow, that was amazing. That was such a great example. And honestly, right before this, I had my do-rag on and I feel like I should have kept it on. You know what I mean? I, I think that I should have did that. That was so powerful, what you just shared, because really you had me reflecting for a second. And that's something that I've struggled to give a message around because I am, you know, a black man. But I also recognize that I do speak from a level of privilege because I am in that power position to be able to pick and choose who I work with. And not everyone is in that position to alter perception and have to fall into that perception. And that's exactly what you're talking about, which is, right, like, if I'm an Amazon warehouse worker, I have to wear what Amazon tells me to wear. Because if I don't, I'm gone. Because there's 10,000 other people who are ready to, you know, fit in that peg, as you will. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. Because I think that is something that I still am working on. How do I bring empowerment to that? Because I'm so removed from it. 
like giving empowerment to the folks that write, they have to fall in line. They have, you know, multiple jobs or they have a family to support and they can't just like be authentically them. Right. And I think that that's something that's still out there, but you kind of helped, you know, bring a little bit of clarity to say, I'm already kind of doing those things by just showing up in these spaces and educating people because right people listening to this, maybe there's 10, maybe there's a hundred, there's a thousand people who just heard this and said, you know, wow, like I didn't even think about it that way. And the example you were giving in terms of that slight perception, I've watched it happen in boardrooms. I've watched it happen in the C-suite when someone's name's brought up and they go, oh, but remember that time they did that thing? I don't know about that. They will write a whole person's life like that fast. Just one little thing. They won't bother getting clarification. They will just say, you know what? I'm going to go with Jane Doe because I know, one, they'll fall in line. Two, I've watched them fall in line before. And three, they'll get me and do the things that we needed to do. And I think just giving my own example is kind of two differences. I worked for Nike for years. And that was a Nike thing, which was, you know, you had to dress it. You had to drink the Kool-Aid is what I used to say. Uh, And in my interviews, I was very different than most candidates because I would ask questions around what I call life-work balance. What is your life-work balance? Because my life comes before this work. People didn't like that. And I remember... People calling me green because of that, because I'm in an interview kind of like setting boundaries. And that juxtaposed that with the company that just bought our startup. They were trying to get me to stay. And I was like, you know, well, give me the reason one, why I should stay. Two, I was being really direct with them. I was saying, you know, we all know this position is going to require me to do way more than is necessary. So what's my career path forward? Like I asked those really, really hard questions. And as you were speaking, I realized that's such a position of power to do that. Uh, Not everyone has that. So I really appreciate you kind of bringing light to that. You know, anyone listening, it's really doing what Rakim did, which is firing your boss and finding a better one and failing forward. That's probably the best thing I've done in my career is dealt with the hard managers, but got to a point where it didn't work for me. And I got to that point, Rakim, quickly. Like it took me maybe a year. Like if you look at my resume in the first five years, I was not at a job for more than a year and a half because there, to your point, are a lot of terrible power-hungry managers that just don't want to see you move forward. And it's almost like when you were talking about the example of the woman, she's like projecting onto you, right? She's saying all the things she wants to hear from her superior to you and knowing damn well that it's not going to happen for you, but knowing that she can take that to him. So I just want to say, I this is episode 19. That was one of the more powerful stories I've heard personally. Uh, so I appreciate that a lot. I like to give space to you to share anything that you might not have gotten to share on the episode. Um, I know we've talked about being financially responsible, tons of value there, quitting corporate, right? Finding your power. But I just want to give you the floor to share anything you'd like to share. Yeah, I, I want to spend a little bit more time on corporate too, just because that's been the theme of my life lately. And then maybe you could talk about uh, what life has looked like after corporate. But you know, I want to share this particular story because I think it'll resonate. I had mentioned earlier that I had experience dealing with depression and anxiety in the past. And I was working for corporate at that particular point in time. And what corporate America taught me how to do was to be very functional (laughs) in that experience, right? So you learn to ignore your body. You learn to ignore your mind because you have to show up. You have to put that face on. You have to go and, you know, like you said, get to the bag. I didn't realize that for years after the worst of my depression and anxiety, that I was still 
in an echo of the remnants that existed. But because I had learned how to be so functional, it was just kind of like, all right, well, this is a normal part of my day. It took me until this year, actually, to realize how sick I was, for lack of a better word. And the experience was in going to get my annual physical. Every year since the worst year, I had been filling out this form on intake around how am I feeling, right? And the questions would guide me through different scenarios that would point to how depressed I might feel or how anxious I might feel. Do you have a hard time going to sleep at night? Are you overeating? How many times in the last week have you felt hopeless, et cetera, et cetera? And every year before this one, it was kind of like a roller coaster. The answers were all over the place. Some were more this week, some were less this week, but it was definitely varied where it was present. This year, which ironically happened just before the full one year um, anniversary of my firing my boss, I went to go get a physical and I was given that form and every answer was zero except for one. And the one answer that was not zero was one. And so that talks about looking at my mental health from an anxiety and depression perspective, getting out of corporate America allowed for me to do the work necessary to address those things. And that I'm not going to pretend in any iteration of, of what that looks like that the last year has not been challenging that I've not experienced stress on a different level than I've ever experienced stress before, particularly financially. However, I have learned how to deal with that stress in a very different way than I was able to getting up and going to work every day. Because I have time freedom, I can decide on a day like today, I'm not going to do anything all day, or I'm going to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy some plants and start gardening my, you know, or a day like yesterday where I'm like, I have back-to-back meetings. I'm trying to finish this assignment. You know, I'm writing an article for whichever publication. And it's like, okay, you know, today's a grind day. Within corporate, I had to show up regardless. And even if I was sitting, the worst part of corporate was, even if I was sitting at my desk doing nothing for the entire time, what counted was that I had shown up and that I was sitting there. So whatever is going on internally didn't matter while I was sitting in that seat. And if I had to take the time, and I think this is the case for most people working in corporate, if they have to take the time to get themselves right, whether that's a mental health day or just regular PTO, you get a feeling of guilt for walking away from that job, right? Or you have this feeling of anxiety coming back in after your time off because the emails keep coming, the assignments are due, you got to get caught up. And so health is wealth as a whole, but mental health has been the biggest realization and the biggest lesson gained through this experience and that it's so important. And more of us need to take ownership of that and acknowledging how it is that we're feeling, what it is that we're feeling, and working through that thing instead of just kind of chucking it to the back for later, because sometimes later never comes. Mm. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing that. Right. I think that just making that space is key. And with my business coaches, something we were talking about is that guilt. I still feel it. I mean, even in my own business, when I take breaks, like I just did kind of a hiatus in the last couple of weeks, I still feel that guilt. And I think what I've noticed difference from like a couple of years ago is that it doesn't linger. I'll feel it and I'll say, I see you there, but this is why I'm doing this. 
and it goes away. Whereas before, I would think about it all day long. I would think about it the next day and the next day. Even if I was back at work, I would still be thinking about, oh, crap, if I hadn't taken that day off, would would I be this stressed? But the answer is always yes, because there's always more shit to do (laughs) in corporate America. So I really appreciate you sharing that because I know it helped me personally. Just hearing that come from you and the fact that you didn't write it off, like, you know, I fired my boss, now I'm better. It's like, I fired my boss and I have exponentially gotten better, but I still recognize these things are happening. I just deal with it differently. And I, the key word that I keep hearing from you specifically is you're dealing with it. And I think a lot of folks aren't doing that. So I want to just pry a little bit more. What's life after corporate like? Because someone as myself, you know, I've, I've kind of been this weird, like I have a startup and then I also have a business, but I still kind of have to show up, but in a way where I have control, like I have a lot more control than I think than most people. But this is like my own personal selfish question. Like, like what is life after corporate like? Like, are there some things that like jump right out at you right away that you think other than time freedom, like, and that's a big piece of it, but like, what is that like? Uh, amazing. <laughs> amazing. Right? You said other than time freedom, but time freedom is the biggest part of it, right? Because there was a trade-off here. I'm making significantly less to live off of than I was when I was working in corporate, but the quality of my life has gone up. And I've realized that I don't necessarily need to make as much as I was making in order to be happy or in order to survive, right? So you understand that as important as money is, I've been saying this mantra, as much as it's about the money, it's not. And sometimes we lose ourselves in that. Beyond that, I've been able to slow down a little bit pursue, you know, things like landscaping and gardening, hone other skill sets like writing. I write so much more now. And as a result, I'm reading so much more, but I'm reaching different audiences through the content that I'm generating through writing. You know, in full transparency, now is a very scary time with the way that the world economy, but particularly the U.S. economy is looking. I am thankful for every day that I add on to this running total of time that I've been free and that, okay, inflation is hitting us hard, right? The price of literally everything is going up. How then do I maneuver financially? What are the things that I pay attention to? What are the things that I don't pay attention to? And I can't tell you enough the importance of, we talked about this kind of in the beginning, as you asked me questions about tips and strategies for people getting started with personal finance, the significance of having multiple streams of income was not lost on me before, but certainly I've realized the value, right? If one vendor or organization that I'm working with doesn't pay me one month, that's not a showstopper for me. It's like, okay, the invoice is out there, the money is coming, but money's coming from here too. If two of them don't pay me, yes, I would be a little bit pissed off, but it's still not a showstopper. And so to have, by my count right now, uh, three and a half, we'll call it, streams of income is not a really a luxury. It's a necessity, um, especially in, in the way that we're looking at the world economy. And then lastly, on the topic of like these multiple streams of income, I think learning that being the jack of all trades that I was constantly punished for in corporate America is now my salvation. There are so many different ways to make money and you don't have to limit yourself to making money one way. 
based off of one particular skill set in the way that you do in a corporate environment, right? So my last role, my title was program manager. I was responsible for oversight of XYZ program. This was a list of my responsibilities. So can Rakim then cultivate a skill set outside of the list of these responsibilities? Maybe, maybe not on a company's dollar, right? And so how do I get better as a coach? How do I get better as a speaker? How do I get better as a writer? How do I get better at social media, right? While I'm focusing on the programs that I'm assigned to. Well, now I can make money using all of those skill sets, right? I get paid to write. I get paid to speak. I get paid to manage social media. I get paid to just show up. I get paid to have a conversation. So because there's so many different ways for me to make money now, there is a maximizing of the value of my time going to the idea of time freedom, right? I'll give you a little example. This week, I went and sat with a friend for a couple of hours at a coffee shop because I could. And in that conversation, there was an exchange of ideas that this friend decided to pay me for. So not only do I get to execute on my time freedom to do things that give me joy, but if somebody sees the value in me giving them my time, and decides to pay me for it, well, that's a win-win. Absolutely. And I think that's key is that time freedom piece and building that in and leaving yourself open. And, you know, we touched on it, but multiple streams of income is is a rarity today. I don't think really many people truly understand what that is and the power that it can have. But I love that you said it's a necessity because I've always thought of it like that. Probably for the last five years, it's like, how do I do this? And I struggled. And I was stuck because the world doesn't work like that normally for the average Joe, right? And so really for me, it was purchasing a house to having, you know, real estate income, you know, looking at, you know, investing, not as immediate income or income in 10 years, right? Looking at crypto as passive income, looking at, you know, really, like you said, your skills, marketing, writing. And as you were kind of speaking, I'm like writing down like, man, what are ways that I could utilize Rakeem's skills? What are some ways that I could hire him? And I'll be real, like we're going to, after we get we're done recording here, I definitely want to talk about that. But getting to, and being a little selfish here, I got to stay on brand, Rakeem, all right? So when you're feeling stuck, especially just in any facet, because you're doing a lot right now, when you're feeling stuck, what do you do to get going again? Or do you do anything? Uh, you're right. So doing a lot, I'm constantly feeling myself being tugged in different directions. So that helps me not stay stuck because I am somebody who, in some respects, can be, I won't say a perfectionist, but definitely caught in the uh, analysis paralysis, right? I want this to look good. I want this to be of quality. How can I make this look good? And so I get stuck a lot of times in what that execution looks like because it's like, oh man, I need to start this project, but I'm also wanting to start this project and I want to start that project. And I can tell you right now, I have like maybe between three and five projects on hold. So, um, you know, I think the urgency in what these commitments look like to other people kind of helped me get unstuck, but also living in your purpose being able to identify what your purpose is, first of all, but living in your purpose gives you a boost in a kind of a way that it doesn't feel like the hamster wheel of the job, right? It feels like you're making a difference. So I will tell you right now, an instant shot, you know, we you call it a shot of espresso, or we call it a shot of tequila, right? An instant shot for me in moving forward and getting unstuck is getting feedback from somebody that I've impacted. 
if somebody sends me a DM or writes me a comment or sends me an email or a text message or a phone call and they're just like, hey, something you did, something you said had an impact on the way that I think, the way that I move, the decisions that I've made, how I interact with other people, how I've decided to take it upon myself to go out and become an educator, that makes my entire day. It's like, okay, well, somebody caught the bug, right? I sneezed in somebody's face. And so when I get the validation of that connection of impacting somebody else, that helps me get unstuck because it's like, okay, well, what else can I do? If I stop now, all of the people that I could have helped will never get the help that they need. Just being purpose-driven, I think, is kind of root or central to getting unstuck, understanding your purpose, identifying your purpose and understanding it. Well, you know, I'll just give you immediate feedback right now. Like, not only you're like candor in the way you say things, but the level of empathy you have when you do say these things is really impactful and allows, I think, even listeners, even myself, to disarm any expectations we're bringing to the conversation to fully listen to you and take what you're saying. And the biggest impact for me is really understanding and looking at time freedom in my own life but also understanding that I'm human and I need to give myself grace because that's something I always talk about. And I don't know if you meant to come off that way, but you do. You demand grace when you step into a room and I absolutely love that. So keep on going. I think this is a fantastic place to stop. Rakeem, thank you so much. All of Rakeem's links will be below. Um, Rakeem, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Unstucked Podcast. Visit us at unstucked.com and follow us on TikTok at Unstucked.